Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading today is the story of the rich young ruler and his question about getting into heaven. And it comes to us from Luke's Gospel, the 18th chapter, verses 18 to 30. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is possible, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Then Peter said, look, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading is from Acts 2, 43 to 47. This is about the early church. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as you all know, we're doing our sermon series, Church and State, the rise of early Christianity. Each week, we're looking at the history of the early church, the documents we find in the New Testament. And we are asking the question, what does the church in the first century have to tell us about being the church in the 21st century? Now, for the last few weeks, we've been going through the various ups and downs that the leaders in the early church have faced, and the most recent problem that we encountered is what happened, what we talked about last week. So for the first 20 years of the church's existence, from 30 to 50 AD, the church was comprised predominantly of Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah. But then, beginning 
in the mid-50s, around 55, the composition begins to shift dramatically. And the number of Jews begins to decline, and the number of non-Jews or Gentiles begins to increase. And what we come to find as we start looking more closely is that not only was there this switch in composition, but that the Christian mission to the Jews was failing rapidly. Now we know this to be true because you can see it in Paul's letter to the Romans. He's talking about it. He's trying to deal with this issue. But we also know this to be true because there was a collection being taken up among Paul's churches, and he was having to send this money back home to the mother church in Jerusalem. And so clearly what was happening is that because of their declining membership, they could no longer financially sustain themselves, and so they were becoming more and more dependent on Paul to make sure that they had the finances to keep going. But this isn't how the church originally funded itself. Originally, the church funded itself through what we read in Acts, which is that basically anybody who was part of the church, they came together and they sold all of their possessions, all of their goods, and they placed the money into a large pool. And then they would draw from that money as anyone had need. Now this worked well in the early church because the early church was comprised of people from a variety of different classes. So yes, there were a lot of poor people, but there were also a number of people who were quite wealthy, quite well off. And these people gave huge amounts of money to subsidize the church. And what you have to realize is that this model is unique in history at this point in time. Yes, there were wealthy people who gave large sums of money to places like the Jewish temple. So if you were a Jew, you'd give that money to the temple. But this idea that we're all together in the church, let's just assume that we're all the early church, that we have somebody who gives a huge amount of money, and with that money, we support all these people who are poor. Now, the reason why people who were wealthy were willing to do this is a direct result of Jesus' teachings on wealth, which is what we heard Judy read to us this morning. So have you all heard the story of the rich young ruler before? If you've been to church, I'm pretty sure you have at some point in time, right? That you've heard this story. So basically what happens is Jesus is walking along, this rich young ruler comes up to him, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now you read this question, and in English, it sounds fairly sincere, doesn't it? Like he just wants to know, what do I need to do to get by? But if you look at it a little bit more closely, what you realize is that he's not being sincere at all. Because in the first century, the Jews believed that your place in life, your place in society, was determined by God. And so it was a reflection of whether God loved or hated your family. If you were a person of great means, a person of great wealth, well, God had placed you there for a very specific purpose. Because your family was good, you were loved by God, and you were blessed. Whereas if you were poor and living in poverty, then what that meant is that you had done something against God, that you had hurt God, and that God was punishing you and your family for some sin that you or your ancestors committed against God. So this wealthy ruler, what you have to appreciate is that what he's looking for is confirmation of what he already believes to be true which is that he is loved and chosen by God. But Jesus does not provide this confirmation for him. In fact, Jesus, after getting this question from him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, you know the commandments. Just follow those. And then he names a few off. He says, don't murder. Probably a good one to start with if you want to get there, right? Don't murder. 
Don't commit adultery. Don't defraud or steal from anyone. Make sure that you honor your father and mother and don't bear false witness against anyone. He names five. Now, there's a total of ten commandments, right? The first four are all about worshiping God, and the last six are kind of how we're supposed to live in our lives. So he leaves one out of the last six. Now, the rich ruler, he hears the first five, and he says, hey, I've done all those things. Check. I'm good to go. But Jesus, he's very sly. The one he leaves out is the commandment not to covet. And that word covet, all it means is, I see what you have, and I desire it for myself. So Jesus says to the man, you only lack one thing, one thing. Just go sell all you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And so it says that the rich man, he walked away very sad, for he had many possessions. Now the reason why he's walking away sad is because he believed that his wealth was a reflection of how much God loved him. But Jesus is saying, on the contrary, your wealth is a stumbling block. It's a barrier that prevents you from knowing God's love. And this is when Jesus levels the most challenging statement in the entire New Testament, particularly for a church like ours that is fairly affluent. Jesus says how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he uses this analogy. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He's talking about a sewing needle, by the way. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples, they are kind of flummoxed by this because they're like, dude, if this guy can't get in, then we got no shot at it because he's like the best, right? I mean, that's the way that they thought of it at the time. But Jesus, he's upending these norms. He's saying, actually, the way that you've understood it all this time, that's not right. That, in fact, it is the poor who are first in God's kingdom, and the wealthy, they will be last. And so as a result of this teaching, people who had great wealth, they were willing to give over substantial portions of their money to support the needs of the church because they didn't want their wealth to stand in the way of their relationship with God. So... These church leaders, right, they come into possession of this big pool of money. And what do they do with it? Well, let's say you all of the church, what they would do is they would say, do you have enough food to eat? Do you have clothes on your back? Do you have a place to stay? And they would use that money to take care of you. So in this way, the church was supposed to be a mirror of God's kingdom in the world. The church is supposed to be a reflection of Jesus' teachings, where everybody is on equal footing, and money is no longer the arbiter of whether you succeed or fail in life. And that's what the church has always been, or at least what it was supposed to be, is that when you come into this place, we are different from the rest of the world. Now, would you all agree with me that striving for Jesus' vision of God's kingdom is a good thing? Would you agree with me on that? Yes? Yes. Would you agree with me that what he's talking about, that people shouldn't go hungry, that people should have a roof over their heads, that people should have clothes on their back, do you agree that that's a good thing? Yes. Okay, I hope so. Because the fact is, I don't think anybody in this church would sit there and say, no, it's a good thing for some people to go hungry and starve to death. I don't think anybody in here would say it's a good thing when somebody can't afford medical treatment and they're going to die from cancer. I don't think anybody in here would say that. I think everybody in here would feel compelled to say 
that based on their Christian faith, that every human has a fundamental right to food, water, shelter, clothing, medicine. Now where we might disagree is how you bring that about. Because different people are going to have different ways of bringing it about into the world. Some people would say, well, we each need to do our own individual part. If we all work as individuals, we can make a difference in the world. Other people would say, no, we need to kind of come together as a larger group in a church like this. And then we can have a larger impact on the society. And some people would say, oh, no, no. What you need to do is you need to take the model of the early church and implement it on a larger scale within the government. Let's start with this large scale and work our way down to the individual. So when a whole society comes together and says that they're going to live in the same manner as the early church, we refer to this as socialism. And it has worked with varying degrees of success in our world. In places like Denmark, Finland, Sweden, socialism has been relatively successful. But in places like Russia, North Korea, Venezuela, socialism has either destroyed or is currently destroying those societies. Now, regardless of your personal perspective on socialist economics, the fact is, this particular type of economics, it lives and dies through the buy-in of the people who are involved in it. So let's take the early church, since that's where the model actually comes from. So in the early church, people willingly gave away their money to the church. They wanted to give their money away because they believed that their money would be used for a good cause, a good purpose, and that it would be managed well by the church. And this is what you find in countries where these egalitarian ideals work well, which is everybody, the most of the society, is bought into the idea that you're going to take most of my money, and they believe that the government is going to manage it well. Now, here in America, we are in a little bit of a different situation. Would you agree? So in America, this country was founded by people who were fleeing oppressive governments. And so it should come as no great surprise to us that most people, or a good portion of the population, have an inherent distrust of government here in America. Therefore, implementing the church model on a larger scale here probably wouldn't work because most people have this innate distrust of the organization that would be managing the money. But that doesn't mean that America is any less capable of creating God's kingdom. So there's an historian, his name is Wallace Stegner, and he had this very interesting way of talking about free market capitalism. And he said, in his opinion, free market capitalism is actually one of the best ways to create the greatest amount of wealth and the greatest amount of charity among the largest numbers of people. And here's how his argument went. So when you have somebody who immigrates to the United States for the first time, somebody who's coming over here fresh, they usually have to work extraordinarily hard in order to survive. They are working to ensure that their children have more opportunities than they had. And so what they're doing is they're saving all their pennies, they're living very frugally, and they give almost none of their money away. Like, almost none. They hold on to all of it. Now, this stinginess, it actually benefits the next generation. Because when their children come of age, they can afford now to go to school. And they can get professional degrees. And they can make a much higher wage than their parents did who were working generally low-skilled labor jobs. 
Now, the second generation, they tend to be very prosperous, but still quite conservative with their money. So they will give to charity in small doses, but you also have to realize that they are supporting three generations of people. They're not just supporting themselves, but they're usually supporting their parents, and they're supporting their children. So they're still holding on pretty tightly to their money. Now, it's when you get to the third generation that you see a dramatic shift, because this third generation, they have benefited from all the hard work of the previous two generations. And these generations, the third generation, they tend to be very charitably minded. So because they've grown up knowing only prosperity, because they've grown up knowing only the good things that have been given to them by their family, they are aware, unlike many other people, of just how well they have it or how good, well off they, they are doing. And so these are people who will give back by doing jobs that are helping the community. These are people who will become caseworkers. These are people who will work for charities because they want to give back. This generation is willing to earn less than their parents did because they want to give back and they want to make a difference and they want to help those who are less fortunate. And they're willing to give away their money for the benefit of the whole. And so in this way, Stegner argues that capitalism is not just a system of economics, but that capitalism has some of the greatest potential out there to foster huge amounts of charitability among whole generations of people. Now, the interesting thing about this, though, is that in order for us to truly create God's kingdom, the key to all of this is that all three generations, though, have to be working together. Because you can't have one generation working and not the other generation. They all have to be working in tandem. And in the church, by the way, we tend to have all three generations here at once. Which brings me from this larger idea down to the smaller one, which is when we all come together in a church and we're working for the benefit of the community. So, the one place that all three generations feel that they can donate their money and it's going to be used well is the church. All three generations tend to believe that if you give your money to the church, it's going to be used for a good cause, it's going to be managed well. And I've told you all in the past, and I'll tell you again, that I work very hard to ensure that the money that you give to our church is managed well, that it's used in an efficient and cost-effective manner. The staff who work at this church and the boards who are here, the people who are on these boards, look around you, there are people who are on the boards in our church. They are responsible for managing the money that you give. Do you all work hard for the dollars you have in your pocket? I know I do. <laughs> and I know that if I'm going to give that money away, if I'm going to choose to give that money over, that I want to make sure that it's going to be used in the best way for the creation of God's kingdom. And the great thing is, is that when we come together and we pool our money, just like the early church did, we can have a huge impact on the world around us. And this is the concept of the power of one, as we work together to change our world. Now, this is what you've been seeing for a lot of weeks now in those videos, but this concept is what we work towards in our church. You all bring your own individual and unique gifts and that's a great thing. But we have to use those gifts in tandem if we're really going to make a difference. And the fact is, we are moving into a new phase of our life in this church. For the last four years, if you've been here, you've heard me pounding away at this idea 
that Jesus tells us we are God's hands and feet in the world. And you all haven't just heard that message. You are living it out in this place. Every week in this church, hundreds of people, hundreds of people come together and they give of their time, talent, and treasure to create God's kingdom right here in Arlington Heights. You all bring your own unique gifts and talents and working together, you are serving the least and the lost. It happens on family night. It happens on pads. And pads is really important. That works with the homeless. You probably heard Judy talk about it. We do need people to do that. That's an important ministry. So if you can give to that, that's a big deal. Who here has done service day before? Service day is where we get together with Southminster and we go and we work in the community that way. We also have VBS this year. Katie Allen, she's downstairs doing her thing with all the kids. But Katie Allen, she made Mission Factory for the 5th and 6th graders. During that week of VBS, they go out. This is something that was plastered all over our denominational media. It's a big deal that she got that. That was front cover, what those kids were doing. That's going to be emulated in places all over the country now because of what she did. We also have Presbyterian women. A number of you in here are with Presbyterian women. And the fact is, is that these, that you all, when you do that, Presbyterian women, those ladies come together each week and they work very, very hard to ensure that the money that they give goes to a lot of different organizations in our area that need support. And that's a big deal. We also have Coffee Grounds, the, that group that meets downstairs. That's one of our life stage groups. That group is doing a lot during Advent. Who here has been on a mission trip before? Okay, if you've been on a mission trip, you've got the youth doing their mission trips. You have Dominican Republic. You have Sisseton, South Dakota. We also have Judy, who's running our Stephen ministry, people who are out there serving those who are in need, going through tough times. And then the people who are on our boards, the trustees, the deacons, the elders. And then we have people who don't do any of those things, but they just help out around the church. There are people who work outside and they make sure that the church looks beautiful. And then in a few weeks, we have Advent. And there's going to be people coming together to make sure that this place looks absolutely beautiful for the Christmas season. So, the fact is, you all are giving in huge ways to this church. And I would argue, because I've heard it from other people, that we are living out the call to be a Matthew 25 church more now than in any other time in the history of the church. I've spoken to people who have been here for more than 50 years, and they have said to me, Alex, this is the most that we've ever seen this many people involved in really serving. So now, it's time for us to come together as one to ensure that we have the financial strength to continue living up to our responsibility as a Matthew 25 congregation. So last year, you all committed $1,240,000 to the programs, mission, and operations of this church. That's a lot of money. And for the first time, thanks to you all, for the first time since I've been here, we had exactly the amount of money we needed in order to achieve all of our goals. And that's a big deal. Because if you go around and you talk to a lot of these churches that are around us, they are not there. They are not able to achieve that end. And so thanks to you and what you've done, we've been able to achieve those goals. But now, we need to look into 2018. And as great as we did last year, we do have some needs that are coming up in 2018. And I want to be transparent about what those needs are. So, coming up in 2018, we 
have our mission that we've been doing. And the way we've been paying for that mission is through an ECO, what's called an extra commitment opportunity. And some of you were here in 2015 and you gave to that. And that pool of money has allowed us to do family night last year, this year, and it's going to drive us through even part of 2018. But we are going to need more money to keep that going in order to fund our relationship with faith community homes and to keep family night afloat. And so what we need to do is we need to be able to raise an additional $60,000 this year in order to maintain those relationships so that we have a total budget of commitments of $1.3 million. Now, we can all easily do this if every single person in here is willing to give $160 more this year than they did last year. If we pool our resources and each person is willing to give approximately $3 extra a week, or if we're going to be exact for you math people, $3.08 a week is really what it comes out to. If you give $3.08 a week and we all do it together, we can easily reach that level of $60,000 of what we need to get there in order to be funding this mission. Now, some of you, you may not have been here last year, or you haven't given before, and you're asking me, Alex, do I only need to give $160 to the church? That's fantastic. You sign me up right now. And we do need a little bit more from that if you haven't given before. And if you want a benchmark for what, where you can start, it's about $35 a week is what we ask for an individual. And that comes out to $1,820 a year for an individual or $3,640 a year for a couple. Now, if you're new to churches, that might look like a lot of money. And it is a lot of money for a lot of people. And I want you to know, and I say this every year, and I'm going to continue to say it every year, that when I put those numbers up there, I want you to know that if I'm asking you to do that, I'm doing that myself. I give that amount of money and much more because I would never ask you to do anything that I'm not doing myself. And the reason why I give back to the church is, one, I believe that when you give to the church, it's a way of showing love to God. And two, when I give to the church, it means I have some skin in the game. Because it's one thing for me to stand up here and say, oh, you all give and you pay me. It's a whole other thing for me to give back and to say, okay, I want to make sure my money is being used in the best possible way and it's being managed well. So if you can hit that $35 a week baseline, that's great. If you can't quite get there, get close to it. If you can exceed it, that's even better. Because the fact is, there's a lot of people in this church who give a lot more than that. And that's the reason why we're in such a strong financial position, is because of those who go even beyond that. But this is the baseline where we would like you to start. And so, next week, here's what I really need you to do. Next week is Commitment Sunday. You should have received one of these guys. If you haven't, they're in the pews. And you can pick one up. And so next week, what you're going to do is... You're going to take this and you're going to write down what you plan to give to the church in the coming year. And what I hope you'll do is I hope that you will add an additional $160 or more, you can always give more, uh, to what you will give for this coming year in 2018. And when you do that, my hope is, is that you're going to think back to those men and women who comprised the early church. Because how much did they give to their church? They gave everything. Think back to them, how they were willing to give everything over, because they believed that their generosity was a way of showing love to God, 
and they believed that their money was going to be managed well. And I hope those two things are true for you. I hope you understand that when you give to the church, it's a way of showing love for God. And I hope you believe that your money is being managed well. There are people in here who are going to make sure that that happens. Thank you for supporting the mission of this church. The mission that Jesus gives us is the most important thing in the world. And thank you for supporting First Pres because we are truly doing our best to create God's kingdom here on earth. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.